25, Galatians 3, 19 through 25. When Paul is talking to the Galatians and also talking to the detractors or the enemies of the church of Galatia, he's putting forward the defense of the gospel. This is Galatians 3, 19. What purpose then does the law serve? The law of Moses. It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then opposed to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. The word of the Lord. Well, I want to tell you about the time that I shoplifted. Yes, it's true. Your pastor has shoplifted. At the right young age of eight, I was heading in the wrong direction. There was a gumball, and I wanted it. Now, there was a little red devil on one shoulder that said, you should not take that gumball, Carlos. Your parents have raised you right. That was the angel, that's right. The other side said, you want it, take it. It's so tasty, so fruity. You know you deserve it. And I'm afraid that even though that I knew what the law said I should do, I did the exact opposite. Well, of course, my mom was there watching, and she knew. And lo and behold, I was caught in the act. I don't even think that I was able to consume the gumball before it was taken from my grasp. But even worse, my mom made me go up to the shopkeeper and to confess my sin. And as an eight-year-old crying and weeping, I went and I apologized. I have not yet shoplifted again. I remember that time. It's stuck with me. You know, there is something about the power of guilt and shame. It's very hard to take it off. It's like the clothes that we wear. <clears throat> There's a host of public and private sins that I have committed uh, as I continue to grow up, which hopefully one day will happen in entirety. But what I've noticed is there is a law, whether it be on the books or in my heart, that I know the thing that I'm supposed to do. And yet all too often, against my better judgment, there is a deeper desire that consumes, that overwhelms me that takes me in a direction that I don't want to go. What can we do? To, and along with that comes the guilt and shame of knowing that I have not lived up to be the person that I was meant to be. See, that's what the law does. It brings condemnation and along with that guilt and shame, two of the most powerful negative emotions that we can ever feel. And what I have discovered, and what the scripture is saying to us, is that guilt and shame can never change you. 
It's only the grace of Jesus Christ that can free us from the condemnation of the law. See, it's only the grace of Jesus Christ that can turn the law from an enemy into a friend. Now, how does the grace of Jesus Christ do that? Well, that's what we're going to discuss. And we're going to look at three specific points. We need to understand what the law is supposed to do. The first point is that the law exposes sin. It shows something deep inside of us that we would not never know were it not to exist. Number two, the law leads us to Jesus Christ. The law was never meant to be the end, simply an arrow pointing direction of the end. And finally, number three, the law becomes our friend. So let's dig in as we look at these three different points. Number one, the law exposes sin. Paul has been speaking about the grace of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ and how we're freed by the grace of Christ. And then he answers this question in verse 19, why then the law? You can hear the detractors of Paul almost shaking their fingers, saying, Paul, you leapfrogged the entire Mosaic law that God gave us. You've gone from the Abrahamic covenant of the promise of blessing, and you've skipped over the law of Moses. How ridiculous. Why then the law, Paul? And Paul wants to answer this. He says it was added because of transgressions. Now, what exactly is the law? We know it's the Mosaic law, but it's greater than that, isn't it? The law is everything that God tells us what we should do. It's the law that's in the book of God, in the Bible, but it's even deeper than that, isn't it? It's in our hearts. It's me as an eight-year-old in that checkout line, seeing that gumball, knowing intuitively that it's wrong to take it, that it doesn't belong <clears throat> to me. It was added because of transgressions, the scripture says. Some other verses illuminate this. Romans 3.20 says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Romans 7.7 7 puts it this way, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. As you might have found, it's very hard to do what you know you should do all the time. Right? We don't have to teach our kids to lie. We don't take them aside and say, listen, I want to give you six steps of figuring out how to be a very good liar. No, we have to teach them not to lie. And that is because there is a rebellious nature in all of us. And what the law served to do was to shine a flashlight on the truth so that there would be no squirming out of it. But it's very interesting when somebody tells you not to do something, there's a part of us that instinctively says, I want to do it. I'll show you. Nobody can tell me what to do and not to do. And it was the scripture by illuminating right and wrong that sparked a desire in us, if you will, to live contrary to the laws of God. So the scripture not only illuminated us, illuminated sin, it imprisoned us. 
Notice verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. The scripture or the law pronounced a sentence on you and me. Now we understand this a little bit when we look at the Ten Commandments, do we not? I am the Lord your God who brought you out. You know, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down or worship anything, for I am a jealous God. You shall not make an idol of anything on the earth, above the earth, under the earth. But it was Jesus that really sort of stabbed us in the heart with the law. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount really serves to clarify the law. It expands it and shows it in its fullness. For instance, in Matthew 5, 3, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, this is the people to whom the blessing of God will come, not the curse of God. It's for those who are poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit means to acknowledge and understand and agree with the fact that I'm morally bankrupt, that I do not measure up to God and his requirements. And so Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, meaning those who are always poor in spirit. Have I always been morally bankrupt all my life, understanding that? The truth is no. There are times that I'm quite smug with myself and my righteousness. But the blessing only comes for those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, meaning the blessing of God is for those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those who mourn means those who mourn for their sin. Those who mourn for their own sin and for the sin of others, for the sin of the world. Those who weep because of the things they do wrong. I think I did that once or twice, maybe, in my life. But a constant life of mourning for my sin. Do I do that? No, I don't. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What God is saying is that his blessing is for those type of people who hunger and thirst to do right, to always be right, to live in a world where right, the rightness of God, is shown everywhere. Blessed are those people. Do I meet that standard or the, that requirement? The answer is no. The Sermon on the Mount, far from being comforting to a non-believer, is quite damning. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. None of us can meet that criteria, can we? The law condemns. And so verse 23 is quite right. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. It is the policeman that came along and said, guilty, let's bring them to jail to suffer the consequences of their sin. For the wages of sin is death. The law exposes sin. 
I don't know if you've been following the uh, collegiate scandal, uh, Operation Varsity Blues, I think it was called, in which a variety of high-profile rich people uh, manipulated uh, the system in order to get their kids into college. Uh, the, the two most high-profile uh, are Felicity Huffman of Desperate Housewives and Lori Laughlin, Aunt Becky from Full House. Well, Felicity was, uh, was uh, sentenced this week uh, to 14 days in prison, a $30,000 fine, supervised release for a year, and $250 uh, hours of community service. And what was her crime? Her crime was paying $15,000 to a person to arrange that when her daughter took the SATs, that there would be a proctor who would be there who would uh, illicitly, after the test was done, correct uh, the wrong answers so that uh, Felicity's daughter ended up getting 400 more points on the SAT, a 1420 out of 1600 on the SAT. So she could get into a prestigious university. That's a very good score. Now, why did Felicity do this? It was because she believed that her daughter did not have the ability to make the standard in order to get into the particular school she wanted to get into. And because she could not make the standard, there was only one thing to do, and that was to cheat. To get someone smarter to come in, to stand in, if you will. The only problem is it's illegal. And she got caught. She broke the law, and the law exposed her sin. <laughs> See, you may be looking to the law to justify you. You may think, I don't need someone to cheat for me. I can get the 1600. And so you come to church, you tithe, you keep your nose clean, and you think you've hit a perfect score. But then you listen to me read the law, and you certainly begin to wonder. Or maybe you've come to the conclusion that you can't get a perfect score. Because the standard is perfection, is it not? Did not Jesus say, you must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect? And so you begin to compare yourself, not to God, but to Hitler, and to Stalin, and to that bum on the side of the road. But the reality is, all that you and I are doing is straightening deck chairs on the Titanic. The ship's going to go down. Because the law was added because of transgressions. The law was not added to justify you. The law was added to condemn you. To show. Because as verse 21 says, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. You see, the law is the noose by which we hang ourselves. And so what Paul is trying to tell you, and I am trying to tell you, is that you have to give up on the law. God demands 100% perfect obedience, and if you cannot do that, you better find someone who can do it for you. And that's where we transition from the badness to the goodness. Because my second point is that the law leads us to Christ. 
See, the Jews wanted the law to transform them. The issue they thought was their lack of knowledge and understanding of what God wanted. And if they only knew what God wanted, that they would go ahead and do it. But the answer is quite different. Verse 21, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? 